Welcome, uh, welcome to your own church, everyone. I am, like Andrew said, from South Africa. It's uh, a bit of a hop, skip, and a jump to get you. And I was told that England was cold, but it is hot right here where I am standing. That is for sure. So um, <clears throat> I sent a few greetings from around the world before I start. Doug sent, uh, sent me a message a few days ago. Uh, you, you might not know this, but uh, we're part of the same network as you guys in advance. And we, this is a church that we really, really love, the church that we often pray for. And so a warm welcome to your own church again from Parkers Community Church uh, in Joburg. And they're thinking and praying of you guys this morning. Hoping that I don't uh, burn stuff down here. And then you may remember a couple called Joel and Amy Kendall, who recently planted a church in Istanbul. They, went, they also send their greetings. They're particularly looking out for a guy called, I think his name is Liam, who, uh, who went to spend some time there. Apparently he's not here this morning. But they, if you see Liam, say congrats to that guy, because he didn't feel like he was particularly useful. But uh, the, the, the fruit that's come out of his visit in terms of relationship with Turks has been unreal in that. And so John and Amy, are, they send their very warm greetings to this church as well. Um, <clears throat> So, like Andrew said, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a full-time teacher. We joke with Doug and the other guys who are full-time staff at our church that they are the professional Christians. The rest of us are just kind of messing around. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a, a teacher at what I think is the equivalent of a state school. Is that a government school? It's run by the government in South Africa. And, and uh, I hear the weirdest things <laughs> from the kids that I teach. Children are very honest. I've seen some kids running around this church, and I assume that your kids are very honest with you. The kids that I teach are very, very honest with me. So I teach them when they are, they come into high school, so they're about 13 or 14. By the time they leave, they're about 18. And some who've taken the scenic route are pushing 20. Uh, but they are very honest with me. I've had a kid ask me one time, and those of you with receding hairlines like me will, will feel the burn of this. He said to me, sir, and he's being genuine, he didn't know why. <laughs> he said, sir, why does your hair grow backwards? <laughs> I was like, oh. So if I knew the answer to that question, then it wouldn't be growing backwards. I had another kid. I used to grow a beard. It's not nearly as impressive as Andrew's. Uh, it's hard to have an, as, a beard as impressive as that. It's one of my prayer requests, so <laughs> feel free to lay on hands later. Um, and I grew this uh, very ginger, quite ugly beard. And a kid told me that I looked like a teenage grandfather. <laughs> Which is strangely very appropriate for what I look like, because I know I look much younger than I am. Uh, <clears throat> so I, but I love my job, I really do. I have amazing relationships with my colleagues, by God's grace. Many of them are, are, are drawing closer to God and are warming up to the idea of, of Jesus and church. So that's incredibly exciting. And I just straight up love what I do. I love teaching. I love teaching young kids. I love being able to influence the lives of so many children on a, on a daily basis. So more often than not, I come home from a work day thanking God for the job that I have. And I'm sure many of you who enjoy your jobs feel like that as well. But there's also days uh, where you come home thinking, please God, please God. Please, God, let there never be another day like that. So our jobs, like, like mine, like yours, have many ups, also have many downs. And part of, part of my job is obviously interacting with, there's about 987 families at our school. That's almost 1,000 kids. And now when you're interacting with that many families, this is what's happened in the last year alone with the kids that I teach. We've had two learners die. We've had, a, not, not even two months ago, the father of a kid that I teach dropped dead just like this from a heart attack. We've got kids who have left school because they've been addicted to drugs. We've got kids who can't come to school because they're crippled by depression. I don't teach at a particularly wealthy school. We've got kids coming to my office almost on, the, on a daily basis, wondering if they can have food because there's no food at home for them. And I don't know about you, but I, I've never had to think to myself, and I, and I ask myself a lot of questions, <laughs> and hopefully you do in your more thoughtful moments. I've never had to ask myself, does suffering exist? Because it's, 
It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. You don't have to... I mean, when you turn on the news, then you become suddenly very aware of how much suffering there is in the world. But even when you just open your eyes, you're aware of the suffering in your own life and you're aware of your suffering in your immediate context. And it's so important that as as churches around the world, we come to an understanding, a God-glorifying, Bible-honoring understanding of suffering. Because if you don't... (laughs) I'm going to steal a phrase from John Piper. He said, it's never too early to learn how to suffer well. Because either you're about to suffer or you are suffering. Because no one in this earth is going to escape suffering. And so if we don't come to an understanding that honors how Jesus and how the apostles and the Old Testament writers taught on suffering, we're going to limp through life. And you're going to find your life shipwrecked on the painful rocks of of suffering. But thank God that page after page of this glorious and precious book that he's given us, that he teaches us how to suffer well, how to suffer in a way that brings glory to God. And this passage that we're looking at today from Romans 8, this passage gives us a godly perspective that helps us to suffer joyfully. And so I'm not going to hide from you the main message of this passage. It's one, we're going to read a few verses, but we're going to zoom in on one. And it's this, that because of what God has in store for us, that the sufferings that we experience, although they are very, very real, because of what God is bringing about for us in eternity, it will pale in comparison. So we're going to read the, the surrounding verses. I believe they're on the screen. But we're really going to zoom in on verse 18 so of Romans chapter 8. And I'm going to unpack three guarantees that this passage gives us that I believe will help us to transform the way that we view suffering. So let's go from Romans chapter 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children then is is of God and fellow is with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And this is the verse we're going to zoom in on. <clears throat> For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await for the adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he has seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Okay. So here's the, here's the first guarantee I want to I unpack for us. Again, we're zooming in on verse 18. The first guarantee is that there, there is going to be suffering in this world. And now before we dive in a little bit further, the word that Paul uses here is not, he's not defining one type of suffering. He's saying, this is like a catch-all sort of category. He's saying, if, if you're in financial crisis, that's suffering. If you're in emotional crisis, battling with depression, you feel crippled by that, that's suffering. If you're physically injured, if you have uh, some sort of long-term disease, that's suffering. So he's not, he don't, you don't just think he's only talking about like, the radical suffering that you see on TV. This is, a, this is a catch-all word. And that suffering, I think every one of us can identify with at some level. So don't, please don't exclude yourself from thinking that this verse applies to you. This is a catch-all word. But in the context of this passage, doesn't, that, doesn't verse 18 seem weird? Because let's look at verse 16 again. Some of, the, some of the most amazing verses. It says, The Spirit of God is in us, testifying to us that we belong to Jesus. 
Now, that is an exciting, exciting verse. And when I, let me just say this. When I arrived here and I saw that I might have to stand behind this little thing, I got anxious. Because as you can see, I, I walk, I shout, I talk. This is just how we do it in Africa. Okay. Uh, how, how exciting is that? Just think about that. How exciting that, that it says that God is living in us and when our spirits stand before God, the Spirit of God has His arm around us testifying to the Father. This guy belongs to me. We are sons of God. It means we inherit. It says we're heirs. We inherit what Jesus inherits from the Father. Ephesians 2 says we are already seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then verse 18 comes and it throws you off balance because you've just come from this, the height of this heavenly seat. I am a son of God. I'm seated. I'm an heir. I'm inheriting the kingdom of God. And then it says, but you're going to suffer. And now we start thinking, okay, hold on, hold on. How on earth did I just go from being the son, this person who positionally is receiving gifts and goodness from God, how did I go from that to suddenly I'm suffering? And if you're anything like me, suffering confuses you. Suffering throws us off because we don't see suffering the same way that God sees suffering. Because when we suffer, (laughs) how many of you have ever, when you suffered, the first thing you did was say, thank you, God, yes, Yes, I love, I love it when I lose my job. I love being sick. It's just amazing. No, no, we don't start there. By God's grace, with maturity, sometimes we get to a point where we begin to receive trials and we see God's goodness in there. Now, that's, that's a place of real maturity. But most of us, when we're honest, don't start at that point. We don't start thinking, oh, thank you. Hallelujah, God, for the suffering that I'm enduring for your name. We end up thinking, God, just, just change my circumstances. Whatever you do, please. First thing we need to understand in this verse is that God does not see suffering the way that we see suffering. God sees purpose in pain. And God sees immense significance in suffering. In fact, God couples these two together in in his mind. Suffering and glory are two points on the same path, according to this passage. Look at verse 17. It describes suffering. It's talking about Jesus. It says, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering and glory are two points on exactly the same path. If we want to receive glory, we means we tread the path of suffering before we get there. It's like husband and wife. They come together. Glory and suffering come together. Now, how many of you have been at a wedding? I took a wedding a, a, week, a week or so before I came. And the, and the bride took her time. To come. Have you guys been at a wedding like that? And you're starting to feel a bit awkward because husband and wife come together, don't they? It's not like a, not just one. It's not just husband and, hmm? husband and wife. So the husband's standing there by the altar. I've just told the, the people there, don't worry, the, the bride will be here in five minutes. Ten minutes later, there's a guy in the congregation. He's literally looking at me doing this. <laughs> I don't control the bride. Husband and wife come together. How many of you have been to a, a wedding where the bride walks down the altar, walks down the, be odd if she walked down the altar, huh? The aisle, that's the word I'm looking for. If she walked down the aisle, takes off the veil, but there's no groom. It doesn't happen. It's unthinkable that that kind of stuff happens because husband and wife come together. And so in our minds, we need to just settle this fact that in the same way that husband and wife come together, so does suffering and glory. There will be suffering. And we see this in the life of Christ. I don't know how many of us have thought of it like this, but, but the whole of Christ's life is suffering, not just the crucifixion, the whole entirety of his life. 
Christ was born into a war-torn, occupied Middle East. Have you ever thought about that? The same way that the Middle East is occupied by foreign forces and invaded by foreign forces from time to time now, that's the world that Christ was born into. The refugee crisis we see around the world, Jesus was a refugee before he was five years old. His life is a life of suffering. He loses his dad as a teenager. There's almost no record of Joseph after we see him at 12 years old. He works humbly with his hands for his whole life before he becomes a homeless preacher. In his own words, he says, the son of man doesn't have a place to lay his head. He's like, I don't have a home to go to. I don't have mansions like Herod and the other the rulers here. I'm not like that. I'm a, I'm a homeless preacher. That's just his life. And then we get to his death. Where he, on the, on the cross, he chooses to take the sin of the world on his shoulder. And he is, he's mocked, he's whipped to within an inch of his life before he's forced to carry his own instrument of death up a hill. Where he's continued to be, to be beaten, to be spat at, to be jeered at. And, and all the, the visual stuff that we see in the crucifixion, that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of what spiritually is happening in the heart of Christ. Like, like Andrew said, the, the spear through his side, the nails through his hands and feet, that agony. That's where we get the word uh, crucifixion. That's where we get the word uh, excruciating from. Because there's no other way to describe what happened. They had to make a whole new word to describe levels of pain when they thought about what happened on the cross. That is just a, that's just a visual representation of the agony of the heart of God as he is being torn from his father. As the eternal union of father, son, and spirit is ruptured for us. That is intense suffering. And let me, let me just pause here for a second. If, if you are not a Christian this morning and you are, you are considering uh, faith or faiths, hear this please, that there is no faith like faith in Jesus because no other God has got scars. Think about that. We live in a world where there is suffering on every corner. There's suffering at every turn of our own lives. How can I worship a God who doesn't know what it's like to suffer? Christ suffered that he could identify with us in our suffering. So if you're sitting here and you're battling and you think Jesus is just sitting in his ivory tower, he's not. He clothed himself in flesh. He's got scars to this day in heaven. When you see him, you're going to see scars on Jesus' hands. And he's going to say, this is for you. I suffered that I might identify with people who suffer. And more than that, that I might save people from their sins. So if you are looking into faith, believe me, I have done some research in my time. (laughs) There There is nothing and there is no one like Jesus. You will not find a God that has got scars. But that's not where it ends. Because we see Jesus suffering in his life. We see Jesus suffering in his death. And then we get this picture. It's Philippians 2. Verse 6 to 11, it ends like this. It says, And therefore, because he emptied himself of his rights as God, because he, he humbled himself to death on a cross, therefore God has exalted him. You see the therefore? Because he suffered. Remember? Suffering, glory, same path. Because he suffered, God exalted him. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee bows, every tongue confesses in heaven and on earth and under the earth that there is nobody like him. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of laws to the glory of God the Father. That is the path. You start with suffering and you end in glory. That's what Jesus' life looked like. And so if we are called Christians, which was originally a slang term to mean little Christs, 
It was actually an insult at first, but now we own it. <laughs> if we are little Christs, why do we think that our lives are going to look different to Jesus? If for Christ, suffering preceded glory, then best we understand that it will be the same for us. Oops. Now, a couple of things here on, on suffering for us personally. Again, if, if you're exploring Jesus, listen to this. Uh, Jesus suffered for our sins so that we don't have to suffer for our sins. That is incredibly good news. So when you go through suffering now, it's not as a means to atone for anything that you've done. Jesus has done the entire atoning work. When he says it's finished on the cross, that's not a punchline to a joke. That is really what happened. The debt has been paid in full. That's what he says. Tetelesta. It's what they used to stamp on, on, uh, on people's debts when they paid them back. Boom. It's paid in full. That's what Christ did on the cross. You're not paying for your sins when you suffer. Here's what we're doing when we suffer now. Because remember, God sees purpose in pain. He sees significance in suffering. It's not just random. When we suffer now, it is to be refined. It is to give us spiritual muscles so that we might be able to handle the weight of glory that's coming. It's so we get muscles in our faith that we can handle the weight of glory that is going to descend on us when we die or when Christ returns. Look at this verse in James. I think I put it on the screen. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith, because that's what the suffering that we endure is, produces steadfastness. And then let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Let me just for a minute say, I have experienced this very personally. We, when we planted our church in 2013, for about four months, I went through the most agonizing depression of my life. I don't usually struggle with depression. But as we started advancing a bit in Joburg, I was just hit with depression like this. And there were times when I wanted to end my life because I honestly thought there was no hope left. I thought, if Jesus doesn't exist, I've really put a lot of my life into this thing. If this isn't worth it, then what the heck am I doing? I actually don't want to be alive if, if Jesus isn't real. That's the kind of point that I got to. By God's grace, it wasn't for very long. But that suffering, what God did in that point, refined me. Because until that point, I had trusted only in feelings for God. I didn't have faith in Jesus. I had faith in feelings about Jesus. Maybe some of you can identify with that. When I, when I felt good about God, then I was good with God. If I skipped my Bible reading, if I didn't pray hard enough or long enough, I felt bad about God, and therefore I was bad with God. That's not how the gospel works. The gospel is finished realities. It's done on the cross. I'm seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And so that suffering, God used that to, to refine me. And if you're in a place of suffering now, believe me, this is God's purpose in your suffering. He is refining you. He is giving you the things that you pray for. <laughs> He's giving you, how many of you have prayed for steadfastness, for, that, for this resolute commitment to God? He's giving you that. How many of you have prayed, God, I want to be fruitful for you. I want to be perfect and complete. I don't want to be lacking in anything. If you're praying to grow in your faith, <laughs> uh, you are inviting a bit of suffering in your life. And that is good. Because this is God's chosen means to sanctify his people, to make us more and more like Jesus. And it's beautiful. And I can, from personal experience, testify to you that, that when there's pain in your life, God has a purpose behind that pain. When there's suffering in your life, that God has a significance behind that suffering. 
And so it's growing us, it's preparing us, it's, it's building our muscles up for the weight of glory that's coming for us. That's the first guarantee. Our second guarantee is that there is a future glory. Hmm. Now, get ready for this. Get ready for this. Put your finger there on verse 23. Verse 23, it says that this is what the glory is because Christians, <laughs> you don't usually understand the word glory. How many of you have used that word glory? Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. And then someone says, hey, but just tell me what glory is. And you're like, it's that, uh, you know, that, that, that Christian thing. We love the word glory. We hear people, oh, glory, yelling it out loud. You don't know what it means. This is what it means. And if you understood it rightly, you're going to stand and applaud. Okay, here we go, verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, as we wait, here we go, here we go, as we wait eagerly for, here it is, this is what the glory is, the adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. And why is no one applauding? Okay. <laughs> this is part of our problem with suffering. Because when we see what the glory is, when we see what's going to outweigh our sufferings eventually, we are not at all excited about it. Do you see the problem? If I tell you, hey, don't worry, endure this because something immensely great is about to happen. But then I tell you the thing that's immensely great, and you don't care, you're not going to want to endure the suffering. Okay, I love chocolate. Now, if someone says to me, you just endure all the suffering, and I'm going to give you uh, a tiny chocolate. I'm going to say, what is wrong with you, bud? Give me something to look forward to. Now, that's our problem. We don't understand suffering now because we don't understand glory then. One of the biggest tricks that Satan has pulled on the church is he's, he's convinced us that heaven is boring. When you think of heaven, how many of you are thinking, okay, there's a long line, first of all, and then I'm going to meet St. Peter, who is he's rad, but I'm, not, I'm actually interested in Jesus. So you're thinking long line, and, you know, I just arrived in the country, so I'm thinking like customs or passport control, one of those sorts of lame lines. Thinking one of those. Then you, when you get into heaven, if you get into heaven, because at that point you're not sure, that's why you're in the line. Okay. Then you get there. Then you're on a cloud. Why? I don't know. And then suddenly, you walk past Peter. He just hands you a harp. You're like, I don't. He's like, you will play the harp. So I'm sitting on a cloud, playing a harp for all eternity. How sore does it, do your fingers get when you play for more than 20 minutes? Okay, now try for eternity on an instrument that you don't know. Who looks forward to that heaven? I don't. Or when you, look, uh, you keep looking at your watch in heaven, <laughs> it just says eternity the whole time. <laughs> That's not a heaven that I look forward to. And do you understand how much that costs us now? Because if we don't have a hope to look forward to it, remember they just read there, by this hope we are saved. If you're hoping in something boring, you're going to suffer terribly for God now. So this idea of, and that's what I'm going to unpack, there's two phrases, the adoption of sons and the resurrection of our bodies. I'm going to hopefully show you that by God's grace, this is something to really, really look forward to. Because this idea of an eternal, cloud-hopping, uh, heart-playing, disembodied nothingness could not be further from the truth of the glory that's coming for us. So here's, here's the first thing that verse 23 says. It says there that heaven is about us being adopted as sons. It's about intimacy with Jesus. Now, if you're a lady here and you are offended by the fact that I keep saying sons, not sons and daughters, let me just talk about this quickly. Sons in the Bible is not a reference to gender. It's a reference to position in terms of inheritance. So men and women, you've got to learn to be sons. 
And dudes, you've got to learn to be a bride. That's how the Bible works. We, we collectively are the bride of Christ. I'm not going to be a pretty bride, but I will be part of the bride. And sons and daughters here, we've got to learn to be sons positionally. We're not just uh, getting caught up about the fact that we're not saying sons and daughters. So we are adopted as sons. And, is the, and that, what that means, that is the completion of what God started on earth. I was reading John 14 a bit earlier. Jesus says this. It's incredible. He says, I'm going now, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come back to you. Then he says, I'm going to prepare a room for you in my father's house. And I love this. He says, and in my dad's house, there are so many rooms. Do you think I would, think I would go tell you that I'm going to prepare a room and then come back and there's actually no space for you? He's like, no, 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 no. What I start now, I'm going to complete later. That's why in that same passage he says, when you believe in Jesus, when you're sealed by the Holy Spirit, in other words, it finishes off your salvation. That's what guards your salvation, the Holy Spirit. What that's, what is, and then he says, I, I put my, the Father and I make our home within you. If you're a believer this morning, that's, that's where Jesus lives. <laughs> he says, I've made my home, I live, I dwell inside of you. But there's stuff that hinders our relationship with God still. And so when it says the completion of our adoption, what that's saying is that you and I will be in unhindered intimacy with God the Father. We will be in physically in the house of God in heaven. You open a door, there's your brother Jesus Christ. You close that door, Jesus is next to you. It's cool like that. You open another door, there's your father God. The God that initiates all your desires, the God that satisfies all your desires, he is physically present right in front of you. It's not just the sense of God is in my heart. Yes, I get to cry, Abba, Father, as amazing as that is now. God's saying that's just the surface. You will physically be in a house with God. That longing in your heart to see God face to face, that is satisfied in heaven. There's times when you're worshiping and you feel like you're, you're pressing your ear against the door of heaven. In eternity, that door is wide open. And you are laying on your face before a God that you can see. And 1 John says, when we see him, we will be like he is. When we see him, that's what hinders us now, is that we don't fully see him. Sin obscures the way that we see God. Death obscures the way that we see God. Satan is at work to obscure the way we see God. When the adoption is complete, nothing hinders our union with God. Not a single thing. How many of you heard me mention harps? Did I say harp in that whole thing? Or right now I did. But before. <laughs> This guy's cheeky, I like it. Uh, did I mention clouds? No. <laughs> because the heaven that the Bible describes is infinitely better than the heaven that you've probably been imagining until right now. It is unhindered intimacy with God and it gets even better than this. If you've got time later, scratch that. Make time later <laughs> to read Revelation 21. It starts like this. God is creating the new heavens and the new earth, and he, he descends and he announces. He says, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's heaven. <laughs> the dwelling place of God, where God will reside for all eternity, that is with you and it's with me. And let me read this little passage that comes out of uh, Revelation 21. It says, And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, there'll be no crying, there'll be no pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. 
Just look at that word wipe. Can you imagine the experience of the scarred hands of Christ coming to you close and he's saying, don't fear, don't, don't worry, don't worry. And, and he wipes away your tears. And you will feel the weight of suffering that you endured in this world disappear like a teardrop like that. You know that, that same word that they use for wipe in Revelation is the same word that Peter uses when he's preaching in Acts. And he talks about God blotting out the sins of his people. So it's not just this tender, gentle, wiping away of a tear. It is that. But it's also the powerful hand of God saying that I will crush suffering and death and mourning and crying. It doesn't happen anymore. I will crush it. The same way that I've defeated fully and finally your sin, I will do away with suffering forever. And yet he does it tenderly because he comes close to your face and he says that it's gone. That's a heaven that I want to look forward to. I'm not on a cloud. I, I don't even like hops. <laughs> I'm not even sure how you stand on a cloud. I really don't know. And also, I don't know where they got this imagery because it's not in the pipe. That's not a heaven I want. This heaven, unhindered intimacy, the destruction of suffering, personal relationship in an entirely unbroken way with God who satisfies all the desires of my heart forever and ever and ever. You're going to look at eternity on your watch and say, thank God that I'm not even halfway through. I don't even know where halfway is. Hallelujah for that heaven. Praise God for that heaven. And that's only the first bit of verse 23. I told you it was exciting. Second bit there, he says, uh, <clears throat> it's the resurrection of our bodies. This is great. Uh, <clears throat> another reason we don't enjoy the idea of heaven is because we don't see it as a physical place. Have you ever thought about it like that? Because you and I love physical things. We love physical things. We love walking on the road. We love cycling. We love uh, going to theater. We love physical things that are right in front of us. And when we think of heaven, we're thinking again, clouds, hops, chubby babies. Again, not sure where they came from. But that's what we think about. And it's this ethereal, mysterious thing. When the Bible describes heaven, it is described in solid, physical terms, not mysterious mysteries. It's not about that. When you read again Revelation, John, this vision that he receives, he is at pains to express just how physical a place heaven is. He's like, look at the streets. They are paved in gold. And now as a South African, this is big. Right? Paved in gold and no potholes. Not a single pothole on the roads of heaven. You don't laugh because you don't have potholes here. I know, I'm admiring your roads. Our roads are basically it's like weaving between holes in the, what used to be tar. He's saying heaven is a physical place. Then he says, look at the walls. Look at the precious stones that are here. He's describing a city. Heaven will look a lot like where you are right now. A physical place. With buildings where you live. It is absolutely physical. C.S. Lewis has this quote. I love it. He says, he says this, don't try to be more spiritual than God. When you think about heaven, don't try to be more spiritual than God. He continues, he says, God loves matter. He made it. So don't think that heaven is just going to be <laughs> running through the clouds there, chariots of fire type stuff. No, 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 you're running on the beaches. Okay, as, as nice as that movie was. You are physically in a city with God. The new heavens and the new earth are a city where we dwell with God's presence, with God himself. And God redeems society and he redeems architecture. He redeems everything. The things that you love to do now, God is going to set those things on fire in heaven. 
I love to read. I love to run. But I, my mind can only take so much, and my legs can only take me so far. In heaven, <laughs> oh, God is going to sit with me and explain every passage that I didn't get when I was here on earth. And he's going to tenderly say to me, you moron, <laughs> look what this meant. Then I'm going to start crying. He's going to say, no, no, no crying in heaven. God will sit with us and, 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 and read with us and explain to us. The way that you guys sit with your kids and read and they sit in their lap and you feel your heart explode. Heaven will feel a bit like that. I'm going to run with Jesus in heaven. And your lungs never get tired. Your legs never get weary. That's what heaven's like. The things that you love on earth that are godly, you're going to do with God for the glory of God to all eternity. You're going to get to explore heaven for eternity. Those of you who didn't get to travel now on earth, don't worry. You're going to get to travel with Jesus in heaven. You're going to get to cycle. You're going to get to surf. You're going to get to explore. You're going to get to understand things that you never understood. You're going to travel. You're going to invent. You're going to build. You're going to work in heaven with God for the glory of God. It's a physical, physical place. And to, and to really root that in us, I want to just say three things quickly that we will do in heaven. Number one, and this I love, we are going to feast in heaven. We're going to feast in heaven. There's a place just by our church in Joba called Duke's Burgers. They have a burger there. They have many burgers there. That if you don't love Jesus, eating that burger will make you love Jesus. That is how good it is. I will take people who don't know Jesus there and just watch them become Christians. That is how incredible these burgers are. And I remember a few months ago, we went there with my community group. It was kind of like, uh, I don't know, like life groups, whatever you guys call them here. And uh, new people had just, had just uh, joined our group, so we, we spoke uh, lighthearted things. We spoke deep things about life. We feasted on these burgers. Then I got home. My heart was so happy. My stomach was so full. And in South Africa, we have this expression. It says, uh, it's an Afrikaans expression. It says, how many South Africans are here, by the way? You put your hand up like you were asking a question. I'm like, I'm sure you would know. You are the one who would know. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, the expression in Afrikaans is, mach is full, uch is tu, which means stomach full, eyes closed, which is exactly how you feel after a good meal, right? You have feasted, you're feeling bloated, you get to sit down and suddenly your eyes, but it's a happy sleep. Now I was lying down like that, and I felt God whispered to me, now you're starting to get what heaven's like. It's physical. Imagine in heaven, when we're feasting, where God himself is preparing the best meat, God himself is bringing you the, the richest beer and the finest wine. And you're feasting with your brothers and sisters until your heart and your belly are overflowing with joy. You're feasting with God. And Jesus is serving you at that table. Again, he's, got, he's showing you the scarred hands wherever he goes in heaven that you will never forget what it's like to be loved by God. We're feasting in heaven. Another thing we're doing is we're, we're fellowshipping with our brothers and sisters in heaven. I might not see many of you ever again. But you and I are going to feast together in heaven. And at that table, we're going to see Jesus. We're going to see the Apostle Paul. We're going to see Peter, James, and John. We'll see Matthew and Luke. We'll get to say to them, guys, those books. Wow. <laughs> he gave us material for years. I loved it. We get to look at the people who wrote this thing. We get to look at the people who are martyred for their faith in Syria. They're also at the table. We are the brothers and sisters of every tribe and tongue and nation. They'll be at this table that stretches from eternity to eternity where we will feast and enjoy God's glory with them forever. We're feasting. 
We're fellowshipping. This is real, physical stuff. If you think I'm joking, read, uh, if you're taking notes, Luke 13, Isaiah 25. I'm not just making this up. Should have probably started with those references. Luke 13, Isaiah 25. It says that Jesus gathers his people from the four corners of the earth and they will recline at table with him in the kingdom of God. End of 1 Thessalonians 3 says, Jesus is coming back with all his saints. We will feast eternally with our brothers and sisters in heaven. That's what it's like. And then the, the third thing here. In heaven, there is no sense of regret. And I know and this is so big for us who live in big cities. Think often you go on social media and you look at your friends' Facebook accounts and you're thinking, yes, their life is so much cooler than mine. You look at Twitter and you look at Instagram and you're like, where are you guys getting this kind of food? Where are you eating? Where are you tra- How much money do you have that you're going on all these expensive holidays? I can't do anything. And then husbands start looking at wives, thinking like, why aren't you like this person? Wives looking at husbands like, why aren't you like this person? Social media has that, it kind of creates sometimes in us, if we're not careful, a sense of everyone else is living their best life now except me. Why doesn't God love me? And then you're in spiritual crisis. In heaven, there is not a single sense of regret. How many of you have got lists of things that you want to do before you turn 30 or 40? Or things that you've got to achieve before you retire? Or things that you've got to do before you've got kids? You've got lists and lists and lists of things so that when stuff gets in the way of those things, you're like, ah, but I didn't waste a moment and I'll have no regrets. Even if you don't hit one of those things on that list, not a single one, the second that you see the face of Christ, that stuff is going to become ash in your mouth. Because the one who started your desires and the one who satisfies your desires is standing right there. No one in heaven is ever going to say, oh God, send me back, please. If only I could just, he's going to, <laughs> you won't even think it. You're not going to say, oh God, if only I'd, I'd worked hard, if only I'd made more money, if only I'd, if only I'd gone to this holiday. If only, uh-uh. It doesn't exist. Because when you see Jesus, everything else pales into insignificance. Missed opportunities on earth, as we call them, become billions and billions of new opportunities in heaven. Like I said, you never got to travel? Travel for eternity. That's the kind of God, that's the kind of heaven that we look forward to. Heaven is a real and a physical place. And uh, let me quickly apply this to us. Because I, if I know anything about fancy Londoners or fancy Joburgers, that when, it, when I talk about heaven... You think, oh, it's a nice thought, but does it really affect my life today? How many of you, when I started talking about heaven, were like, oh, it's, it's nice, but actually, I've still got to go to work on Monday. The more, hear, hear this please, the more you, you think about heaven, the more that you dwell in heaven in your thoughts, the more robust a believer you will be on earth. The more fruitful you will be for God right now, tomorrow morning, when you go to work, if you think about heaven for the rest of the day. Because if you live today thinking that this is all you've got, this is your last shot. You're not going to take any risks for God. And the things that you use to, to give your life significance, your money, your relationships, uh, your family, your friends, whatever it is that gives you uh, purpose, then that starts to control you. You don't have a grip over it. But when you see things in light of eternity, then things don't control you. You use those things for the glory of God. So your money is now no longer your money. It's God's money to use for his glory. Because you're like, I don't really mind how wealthy I get in this life because I'm going to be in a mansion with Jesus all eternity 
Money doesn't control you anymore. You control it for the glory of God. The relationships that you have, they don't control you because you know that eventually you'll end up in a relationship in eternity with Christ. So these things don't control you. You use them for the glory of God. So if you are yearning for effectiveness, you're yearning for fruitfulness in this life for Jesus, then think about heaven. Go home and read Revelation 21 and just sit with it until your heart sings. That's how you learn to be effective. And then the last thing, the last guarantee. The last guarantee is that our suffering isn't even worth comparing. Everything else will pale in comparison. I'm going to make this one quick. The, the word here that Paul uses when he says, I consider. He is not using the word, the way, the way we would say consider. We say consider as if we're kind of weighing it up, we're guessing, we're not really sure which way it's going to go. The, if this is going to be... Uh, I guess a bit better translated, it would have been the word calculate. I have calculated that when I consider things like this, when I look at the scales of life and I put time on the, the scales here and I put eternity on the other scales, I see that it's not even worth comparing. What Paul is not saying here is, hey, suck it up. I don't know if you guys say that to each other here. We say that in South Africa quite a lot. Just, just, just toughen up, man. Just, just stop being so lame about your suffering. Just look to God. Just be a better sufferer. It doesn't help. And God never says to you, your suffering doesn't matter. He'll never say, hey, your suffering is actually, it's actually not that bad. God acknowledges the difficulty of your suffering. But he is saying this, that even if your suffering weighs the entirety of the globe, when we put it on the scale, I put 15 minutes in eternity, and it doesn't even compare. When you calculate... Eternity versus time. Eternity comes out on top. That's what he's saying. I have calculated. I have done the maths. I've shown my working out. Eternity is bigger than time. And let me close with this analogy. Um, Can we have that slide of the city? This is the city where I live. And uh, I was teaching grade eights. So these guys are like 13 or 14 years old. And we were doing a set of notes on, on the solar system and the galaxy. Now, the first page just starts off by listing the planets. Now, that's, that's okay, because that's factually accurate, but you don't really understand the vastness of the universe unless you understand how small you are within it. So I thought, instead of just starting up there, let me start small. So I said, okay, uh, you can be my grade A class, by the way, so feel free to raise some hands. Okay, so what, uh, what city is this? Joburg, sir. What city is this? Joburg. I didn't say Johannesburg, I said Joburg. Let's <laughs> catch up. Okay. So I said, Joburg. Then I said, okay, how many of you feel importance in Joburg? And so they were all like, yeah, I do. Okay, because they live in Joburg. They've got family. They've got friends here. Then I said, okay, next slide. Uh, what is this? And they said, well, that's South Africa, sir. I said, okay, well, how many of you feel important in South Africa? Some of them have got family in other, uh, other provinces. So they were like, yeah, I do. Okay. I said, fine. Next slide. Okay, what's this? Oh, that's Africa, sir. All right. Now, how many of you feel important in Africa? And then they were like, oh, uh, no. I'm beginning to feel my smallness in the context of this thing. Next slide. And this? <laughs> Although that's the world, sir. Yeah. Now, if you flew to... Jeez, if, you, if, you, if you flew to London, how many of you would... Would people greet you at the airport? Are you an important person in London? They were like... Yeah. <laughs> I was like, me neither. Uh, then I said, okay, now that's just the Earth. Now what's this? And they're like, that's the planets. I said, now do you see how small Earth is on that and how small you are in Africa and how small you are in the provinces? And in Joburg, you're beginning to see how small you are. Next slide. 
Then I said, okay, do you know what this is? They were like, huh? That's the Milky Way galaxy. Now, next slide. The whole planet system fits in that little dot. The kids are losing their minds. They're like, yo, how small are we? Is there another one? Is that it? And the whole galaxy, of which we are this little bit, fits into this little bit in the context of the known universe. The kids are freaking out. It was like a revival broke out. Isn't it? <laughs> that's, that feeling, that's what eternity does to your present suffering. God is not standing before you saying, suck it up. It's not that hard. Get over it. Eternity is coming. He's saying, your suffering is real, and I acknowledge that. And as a God who suffered alongside you, I get that more than most. But when you zoom out, that's what you see. You'll see that eternity makes your present suffering not even worth comparing. Because I can't see Joburg on that map. <laughs> and I doubt you can. And the second you step into eternity, you will not see your suffering anymore. Eternity outweighs our present suffering. That is the beauty of this little passage. When we begin to see that, then like Paul is praying for us and like Jesus prays for us now, we will begin to suffer for the glory of God. We will begin to suffer in a way that is joyful and persevering and actually helps others to see Christ in the way that we suffer. Let me pray for you guys now. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are so loving that you would suffer for us, you'd suffer with us. And I pray that if anything, if people leave with anything today, it would be that you are beautiful and you are worth giving our lives for. You are worth suffering for. You are worth the wait to see you face to face in eternity. You are worth everything to us, Jesus. Please increase our sense of your worth in our hearts. Oh, we love you, God. We love you that you've prepared for us a stunning eternity. We love that you've prepared for us a physical place that we can actually look forward to. Thank you that we will eat with you, that we'll see you, that we'll feast with you, that we'll fellowship with you, that we will be in your house forever and ever. Please increase our, our, our desire for heaven. Increase the way that we look forward to it. And let that change the way that this church lives, God. I pray that this would be a transformed church, uh, not because of anything I've said, but because of the way that the Holy Spirit holds eternity before their eyes. Like we prayed earlier, God, uh, make this a bold church because they know that if they give their lives now, it's fine because heaven's coming. Make this a daring church. Make this a courageous church. Make this a, a brave and a, a loud church in the city, God. Let the gospel, the beauty of your saving us, not just in the present, but for all eternity, Oh, let that spread through the city like wildfire, God, and across this earth for the great fame and glory of your name, Jesus. Amen.